Welcome to the Unscripted Podcast, where we have a more casual chat with some of our friends, former guests, and industry pals. Uh, today we have back on, a regular on the show, making his fourth appearance on the podcast. He's a fellow former Trojan, uh, an Emmy-nominated writer and producer of such shows as Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Rosalind Isles, Revenge, and most recently Supergirl. We're hanging with Ted. Hello. Sullivan. Thanks for having me back four times. Do I get something for a fifth time? Yes. A mug? Yes. Yeah, something like that. We'll okay. have to come up with something. Um, and you're, you're like Steve Martin with your fourth appearance. Oh. Basically, only undateable uh, co-EP uh, Craig Doyle has been on more. He's been on five times. So he's the Alec Baldwin here, Steve Martin. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll, ta- <laughs> I'll take the Steve Martin. I'll yeah. take the Steve Martin. Um, so a lot's been going on. Um, Supergirl, uh, staffing season's coming up. Um, and for a lot of our listeners uh, who are aspiring writers, especially, uh, staffing season is uh, an opportunity for them to find their first job. Um, but even for ex- veteran producers, it's an opportunity to find your next job. Um, and so I wanted to maybe touch base a little bit about that since it is coming up so soon. Um, I know productions are still you know, working on shows, and, and you had mentioned um, before we started uh, taping that oftentimes, especially at your level, when you go in to meet or when you're prepared to meet, they're still working on the show. So it's like, you know, we'll talk to you soon, um, that kind of thing. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about staffing season. Um, as a, a producer, the producer level, it does differ because you guys start meeting probably in April, mid-late April, whereas staff writers May, June even sometimes. Um, but what does that like from, look like from your level? I think it's still terrifying. <laughs> okay. Uh, and my wife would be the first to uh, admit that I'm uh, in, that, in that weird mode where you're like, I just want to get back into a writer's room and working again. Sure. So um, it's... Uh, we're in middle of March right now, right. and so we are still a little ahead of the curve right now because, as you said, shows are still finishing up their mm-hmm. seasons. Uh, shows, some shows have been told they they've been picked up, but they don't know what their needs are going to be, which is a whole other game that you start to play because right. uh, every show is going to have uh, various various needs that they, they have for that upcoming season. Mm-hmm. They don't know maybe if someone wants to leave, maybe they're going to ask someone to leave, maybe uh, someone's contract is up and they're going to move to a different show or they want to, or they're going to have a kid or they want to take some time off, whatever. So there's a lot of things that kind of come up between now and middle of April when things really start in earnest. Um, And then there's a whole other uh, round of stuff that happens after the beginning of May when there's official pickups for all the right. new shows and then you're kind of scrambling and maybe you've met on a couple of them which which I did for the first time last year before they knew if they were picked up or not and so then you have these kind of weird limbo meetings where it's like well <laughs> if, if the show goes we think we'd like to offer it to right. you but maybe not and as long as no one better comes along so it's all those types of things uh, and I didn't I, I, I didn't run for um, I, I didn't rush uh, fraternities, but I have to imagine it's a little right from from observing it from afar at USC. I saw it was a little like, oh, it's kind of like rushing that and hoping they ask you. <laughs> right, and, but if they don't, maybe this is a fallback. Right, so you have a fallback <laughs> frat and all that kind of stuff. So um, I think you have to be 
prepared uh, just like you would um, on any level. Mm -hmm. um, you can't treat it like, oh, whatever, they, they'd be lucky to have me. I mean, you got to go in and if, if it's a new show, read the pilot and learn about the people running it and learn about the shows they've done in the past. All the same stuff you do as, as a staff writer trying to get picked up. Um, if the show exists already, right. watch a bunch of them. I try to watch every episode before I go in. I mean, if it's been on for 12 seasons, maybe not every episode. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but I like to know what I'm kind of walking into and do some research and then go in and sit down and have the meeting and hopefully you click with people on, a, on an emotional level as well. So then, then you know you're, you're being plugged into a team where maybe we're all, we all share the same vision, the same creative vision, and it'll be more... Uh, enjoyable and you'll be a better um, uh, tool in their belt to right. use in making the show because that's ultimately what you're doing. You're trying to help someone make their show be the best version of it as possible and listen to what they want and execute what they want to the best of your abilities. Mm -hmm. It's not about taking their show and saying, well, it should be this. Right, right. Uh, I've done that in the past when I was a younger <laughs> writer and it doesn't work out very well. Um, you, you had mentioned watching, doing your research, watching a show, especially if it's been on the air. How often does that kind of stuff come up? You mean... Uh, like asking questions about the show. Oh, if, if it's an established show and, and all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll come up in every meeting. What do you think of the show? Mm -hmm. have, you, have you seen the show? You should be able to say yes. <laughs> you should be able to talk about uh, what you respond to the most. Right. You know, what you think is working. Uh, they don't tend to like to hear like, yeah, you know that whole storyline with right. the with the clone that didn't work out at all. That really, <laughs> where did that? that? Where, right. No, they they want to hear about what you responded to because they're artists that want to hear good news about sure. what they've done. Uh, you leave it to them to kind of talk about things that they felt didn't work as well, but that they're looking to kind of do a creative shift or change. Mm -hmm. Or if they don't feel like they have that, if they feel like they're firing on full thrusters uh, at that point, um, you know, they'll talk to you about what they think their needs are moving forward in the creative direction, and, and then you kind of listen to that and think, well, is there something I saw in the previous season or seasons that I understand how that's building upon and try to have a creative discussion with them, um, which is like a trial run of being in the room with someone. Right. Um, and so you want it to ideally be a bit of a discussion kind of an upbeat positive discussion right um and how you respond uh, authentically and enthusiastically to their creative choices that they seem to be making moving forward uh, allows them to see if you're going to be a good partner in this journey mm -hmm. um but it's definitely it's definitely a process it's definitely something you have to put your time and, and work in on. And, and also um, have the, the this writing samples, um, your own personal writing samples that you can show. This is really my style. If you've been mm -hmm. on, I, you know, I was on Revenge for three seasons. I was on Supergirl for this past season. It, it's not always going to be a reflect, every episode you did isn't always going to be a reflection of really who you are creatively. Sure. And, Right. Uh, nor should it be. Um, so they want to be able to see a more um, uh, focused and pure version of what you would bring to the 
table, your writing style, your dialogue, your how you write action, how you write comedy, do you write women really well, do you write, mm -hmm. all those different things um, might help them see, oh, this person can fill that need that we have. Right. Someone's leaving the show is really good at writing action, or we don't really have someone who writes action really well. You do that, that's really great. Uh, or they might hear you're really good on set or really good at coming up with ideas for for laying out story over time, long, mm -hmm. long story. Sometimes people need help in figuring out what are the signposts we're gonna hit along the, the season. Um, and if you can be useful in that standpoint, then great. They don't always wanna just find someone, if you're writing Supergirl, I was the only person in the room uh, other than some of the show creators right. who really knew anything about the history of DC Comics and okay. that sort of stuff. Everyone right. else brought in a very different um, back, uh, uh, background, uh, both creatively and just professionally. Mm -hmm. They'd all done lots of different things and, and had different emphasis of uh, creative influences um, that weren't comic books, and that's a good thing. You mm -hmm. don't want a room full of clones. Right, well, absolutely. You need different varied points of view and style. Mm -hmm. um, going back to meeting on a show and talking about the show, because obviously you've watched it, <clears throat> um, does it change if there's a change in showrunners? Meaning if like Walking Dead has three seasons, you know, had three seasons, each season had a different showrunner. If you're meeting on a season and the previous two seasons were done by different showrunners, does your sort of approach change? <laughs> I, I would say mm -hmm. yes. I would say that's that's a very good point. Like if, if you're walking in, there have been those types of creative changes. Mm -hmm. The, I think the wisest move is to go in and let them guide the conversation. <laughs> right. Because uh, it's a lot like what you see in um, uh, law shows where you hear lawyers say, don't ask a question unless you know what the answer is going to be. <laughs> right. So you could be saying like, man, I just love that character that's right. got... The, and you could find out later that that new showrunner hates that right. character. And because, and, and, right. So right. um, it's good to kind of, in those situations, when there is going to be a, a creative shift in right. the show, uh, that you, you listen to what they think is the direction that it's going to go in and see if you can pitch on that in the meeting or, mm -hmm. or um, certainly just be aware of what you're saying so that you don't hang yourself. Uh, there's plenty of things that will hang you along the way. You don't need to hang yourself. Um, but, but also know that no matter what you're going to do when you walk in, and if there is a new showrunner coming in, it's not like the new showrunner was brought in to say and said, we're just going to keep going the same direction. Right. Like, they're going to come in with a very different agenda. That's why they've been brought in. Right. So, uh, best not to guess in those moments. <laughs> guess and miss. Yes. You're in trouble. Yeah. You, you might hit big, but, but probably not. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. Um, now, uh, in the like NFL, during the combine, there's all these interviews, and then you hear after the fact, there's all these random weird questions like, "Are you gay?" or you know things like of that nature that seem inappropriate, or they ask you things to try to throw you off. Um, what is without getting into specifics of the who's and the where's and the why's? What sort of the weirdest questions or the weirdest topics that they've brought up in sort of a staffing meeting? Uh, <laughs> Wow. Um, 
That's a good question. I have definitely had some questions that have thrown me. I'm trying to think. I've had someone kind of in a bizarre way mm -hmm. hit on my mom via a picture that they saw online. Like, wow, your mom's really hot. And I was like, <laughs> okay, it's um, bizarre. Yeah. Not really yeah. what I thought we were going to be talking about in this. Right. Um, there are... There are certain showrunners you meet with that ask things like, are, are, you, are you married? Do you have kids? And if you say, well, I don't have kids. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> it's like the, those are the types of questions that when I come back and I tell my wife about that, she says, I, I don't think legally people are allowed to ask you that. I said, yeah, but Hollywood isn't legal that right. way. It just, they, they want to make sure that, so if, if you're going to be my slave, you're going to be my slave all right. the time. Right? right. Like you don't have Not kids. Not a part-time slave. Right. You don't have kids you got to get home to. Um, so there are some of those types of things. Earlier in my career, I think I felt like, well, that's just what it's going to be. Right. I think now sometimes I listen to that and go, well, maybe this isn't there's, the room I want to be in. I, I don't know. Even um, though you don't have kids, that's a little bit of a right. red flag. Well, I've heard from other writers at every level that uh, one of the greatest things, if your showrunner has kids, that's a great sign usually. 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 Yeah, usually. Because they'll want to go. Yeah. So you don't have to be in the room on Saturday morning, yes. and, you know. Usually, it depends, yeah. it depends, but uh, it depends if they want to get home to their kids That's or not. That's true, <laughs> good point. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, the, you know, I have friends who have kids and that they, they've either worked some of the same crazy hours that I have, or I have one friend who's working way worse hours than I've ever had to kind of deal with, and I don't know how she does it with, mm -hmm. Her kids, she's just a better and stronger person than I am, I guess. <laughs> I think I would have snapped. Um, I wanted to talk about the, because I know you're a fellow Trojan, mm -hmm. but uh, you went to the US, the writing program there. <clears throat> yes. I wanted to find out a little bit about your experiences there at USC in the writing program. Is it something? Okay. I will, I will start off with a caveat, okay. which will be this. When I went to the writing program, mm -hmm. which was admittedly 10,000 years ago, uh, it was a very different program from what I understand it to be today. Sure. So uh, uh, I would call it pre-John Furia. And okay. uh, John Furia was uh, the, the dean of the writing program there after I came mm -hmm. in. He was uh, someone who hired me to teach as an adjunct professor there in 2001 or two, I think, which I did for a year, and I really, really enjoyed that. That was very satisfying. In that time, I saw it was a very different program from when I had been there. Mm -hmm. And he had encouraged me in my, the kind of writing 101, screenwriting 101 class that I was teaching to um, be far more realistic in our uh, approach to both uh, prepping them for writing, their, their, their skills as writers, but also prepping them to going out into the mm. uh, industry and being uh, aware of what the reality of that situation is. Right. And when I was at USC Film, first of all, it was a tiny little program. The, the, writing, the writing program was 24 kids, mm. uh, I think, maybe 22. I think we graduated with 16 or 17, so we had some dropout along the way. We were, there were a bunch of classes that were in trailers because we, you know, we, it was, it, it was not the, 
the marble mecca that right. it is today. Sure. I mean, it is the cinematic Valhalla mm -hmm. out there. Uh, when I have gone to lecture there now, I just walk the halls and just can't believe, like, really? This is where you go to school? Right. And you plug in your little docks and you have your HD projectors come down from the screen. This wasn't what it was like. Right, right. Um, our program did not have the same quality, for the most part, the same quality of um, professors uh, that they have today in the writing and production uh, programs, people that actually work in the industry and not someone who just wrote a book on how to write a screenplay in <laughs> right, 30 days, right, right. you know, like, well, that's, is that really the best way to write a sc <laughs> screenplay? I don't know. Um, if you have 30 days. If you have 30 days, sure. I'm not sure how good it's going to be at the well, end of sure. 30 days. If, if, if the assignment is just to write one, right. then mission, mission accomplished. accomplished. Right. Right. Um, there was also an emphasis on the writer is the most important uh, spiritual guide to the, to the creative endeavor of making a film. Right. Uh, that was very sweet and uh, helped really screw me up for a long time because uh, it made me, it inflated an already inflated young ego. Right. Uh, it made me think I was more important uh, than um, anyone else. It also um, fueled an ideology within all of us, I think, of I don't need to take notes. You're wrong. This is my creative voice and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, it's good to have a, um, some ego but it's bad to disregard other people's criticism sure. as, uh, um, as an attack right. or, or just simply being incorrect because they have a different opinion of, from you. Um, that was the, the emphasis of the writing program when I was there. And they treated leaving the program as like you were about to enter Narnia and there was going to be this talking lion that was going to guide you to your first <laughs> contract and the chair was going to spin around and it was right. Orson Welles and he was sitting there with the Muppets saying here's the rich and famous contract. Um, Did you say he was there with the Muppets? Well yeah, it's Perfect. the end of the Muppet yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Orson Welles and he gives Kermit and company the, uh, the rich and famous contract. But um, of course, it's not like that. So right. we didn't have any emphasis. We had no knowledge in how to find agents, managers. We didn't understand how to... Re we didn't have classes on pitching. We didn't have classes on how to even set up meetings for pitches. We didn't find out uh, how to take notes, how to go through the development process. We didn't know um, how, you, how you really um, interact with junior executives and mid-level executives and higher executives. We didn't know any of that stuff. Um, I think maybe they thought like, oh, you'll just figure all that stuff out when you get out there. Right. Or uh, the, the, the more uh, sinister kind of uh, and cynical element of my, <laughs> my mindset would say it was more, uh, they didn't know mm. because a lot of them wrote books. Wrote books. Right. So, uh, when you kind of looked at it, you said, well, wait, what movie did you write? Right. What, what did you sell? Um, it's different now. But when I was there, it felt very like, well, I wasn't prepared for anything. Uh, and if anything, I, I was, um, uh, I, it, it hurt me moving forward. 
um, if I had it to all do over again, I would have either done what my brother did, which was go to NYU, and, and, which was a two-year program, not a four-year program. Mm -hmm. It allowed you to have a more well-rounded uh, general education for the first couple of years and get to become a better student and not feel entitled and different mm -hmm. when you're in a program of 24 people where you live in a separate dorm from everyone else and you're told you're special and we chose just the 24 right. of you. Like, that's, that's not a good thing. Not, not to 18-year-olds coming into a program who already have inflated egos <laughs> right. because they're 18 and they think right. they know everything. So I don't think it was very useful. When I, when I taught there, what John Furia uh, pushed me to do and pushed everyone around me to do in our programs, in our courses, was to create a course that was tough on, the, on, on them, that didn't say, like, what, what's the story you're telling? What's the theme? Push them, uh, slowly bring them into script writing. Them. My students were very frustrated because we, I wouldn't let them write dialogue for the first six weeks. You know, I was saying, you have to be able to tell a three-page script with no dialogue. So mm -hmm. what are the images? Because it's, it's more than just a play. It's, right. Uh, or a radio play. This is, there are visuals here. Mm -hmm. it's, so you have to be able to figure out what, what's the story you're telling. Watching Seven Samurai the other day, I was just thinking, like, wow, there's so much of this movie that has no dialogue in mm -hmm. it. And, but I'm understanding everything that's happening. And I understand what individual characters one. So I would talk about that and before, so they became better writers before they started writing dialogue and using dialogue as a crutch. I also used my class to say, well, this is what it's going to be like when you leave here, to treat it more as like a, um, a professional program, to say, this is, now we're going to do some pitching. And I brought in people who I knew in the industry to say, okay, pitch to these people. Mm -hmm. And then they'll critique you. And then, and then this is how you go about finding an agent or finding a manager. This is, this is how you know a manager is... These are things to watch out for with an agent. These are mm -hmm. things to watch out for with a lawyer. All these different types. Or, or pitching to Brown Entertainment versus pitching to Warner Brothers. Right, you know? right. Um, so I think the program now is, is much more um, fulfilling, uh, both creatively. It's much more realistic. Uh, and I think it's much more useful. Um, when I was there, it just, it just really wasn't. There were a couple of programs that were. My directing class with Abe Polanski, who was a member of the Hollywood 10, was incredibly influential to me because, uh, uh, one, I learned a skill that was very, very important, which mm -hmm. was I learned directing. I learned how to direct. So that by the time I started directing both um, short films and off-Broadway, I kind of knew how to talk to actors. Mm -hmm. I, knew, I knew how to run rehearsals. I knew what I was looking for. I knew how to listen. And then now as a, as a producer, you're not directing, but you're interacting with sure. different department heads. You're interacting with actors. You're interacting with a director. And so it, being a good director allows you to uh, be a better producer. Mm -hmm. So that was an incredibly useful class. Also, Abe was um, unbelievably influential uh, on me as a person. Uh, Abe is a true American hero. He was you know, a World War II vet. He was Special Forces, uh, helped uh, lead uh, the invasion of D-Day, uh, led to uh, POW camps and, and concentration camps being freed. An amazing man. And then when it came time to naming names in front mm -hmm. of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, he, not only did he refuse to do that, he went to prison, he 
uh, didn't work for like 15 years until Redford brought him back in order to do um, Tell Him Willie Boys here. Um, but he was just an, he's an American patriot you know, right. who actually Absolutely. did what you're supposed to do. Right. Um, and so he was someone who had a huge impact on me. On, on, I, he asked me to be his TA for two years, so I was his TA. And so he and I became very close and we would have dinner, with he and his wife, and his great little apartment in, in Beverly Hills. And, and we'd listen to Glenn Miller and, and he would just um, impart insights on what he had learned through this experience. Mm -hmm. um, both uh, the, the fall from being an Academy Award nominated writer mm -hmm. to driving a cab to then coming back as kind of this conquering hero in, in many ways as, as, oh, he was right. Right. Uh, which, you know, the movie Trumbo kind of did some of that with, with Trumbo. Uh, so um, Abe was very influential on that level. And the other person was Nelson Gidding, who um, taught my adaptation class, uh, which I wrote Daredevil uh, in his class. That was the first adaptation I ever did. Uh, or no, it was, it, it was, it was my thesis. So it was, I guess it was my second adaptation. I adapted The Crow first, which was a terrible adaptation. <laughs> Horrible. But I was obsessed with The Crow at that time because it was just new and it was coming out. Right. Um, but Nelson, uh, he too was a World War II vet and he had been shot down over Germany and spent three years in a concentration camp and a POW camp. He taught me, and he was a, a front himself for people like Abe and other, other people along the way. And uh, he was a, 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 another really good, strong, moral person. And both of them said, you know, at, at certain points in your life, someone is going to call you in front of a committee and ask you to name a name or do mm -hmm. something. And you, you just need to know who you are, what you believe, and, and also just know who's going to name names and who isn't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, because no. those are the people that, you know, you can go through life and say, okay, that's, the, the, life doesn't give you a lot of litmus tests to determine if someone good or bad. But, right. you know, are they racist? <laughs> yeah, good or bad. That, that, that's a black or white. Right, right, you know, right, will right. they name names? That's a black or white, right. I think. Um, and so the, those people were very influential, and I'm grateful that USC gave me the opportunity to be surrounded by those people. Mm -hmm. But I also went at a time when film was still king, like independent movies, mm -hmm. and you, you, we, ha we were there at this, this point in the early 90s where you thought, it's gonna just keep being like what uh, Scorsese and John Sayles and early Coppola and what Lucas when he was here and Milius right. and all these people that you're gonna be able to do your 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 opus your just keep making these independent films and really by 95 96 it's like you don't realize you're in a recession until mm -hmm. you're a couple of years in the right. recession by the time you got to 98 99 film was changing so much and the emphasis also think I'm starting to rewatch Sopranos now and just watching that first pilot, which was what, 99, I think? Yeah. That started the, you know, from Hill Street Blues and, and NYPD Blue, there started to be the shift. And, and I wish that our film program, our, our writing program, wasn't just film. Because it, it, right. It said that it wasn't, because it said filmic writing and TV. It was F -W -F right. WTV or something like that. Um, 
and it was, I, I wish that they had enough vision to realize it wasn't going to be love boat and, and, <laughs> right. and hotel for the rest of the, that, that Hill Street Blues and, and NYPD Blue and ER and Law and Order, they were starting to lay the, the groundwork for a creative shift and movement. Uh, Wise Guy was another one, I think, that really was doing something different. Right. And by the time 2000 and 2001, 2, like that's Sex and the City was on, and there was this kind of rebirth of creativity going on in, in TV. The same in a different way, in cable, that maybe had been in the 70s with Mary Tyler Moore and, and uh, Bob Newhart sure. and All in the Family, and things were, uh, shows were about something more than just being My Favorite Martian. Or, right. You know, or, Car fifty four. Where are <laughs> Mr. you, Mr. Ed? Right. It was. It was. It was about something. Right. And now I think TV is where it's all at, and I'm certain that there's a big emphasis on TV oh, in sure. the writing program, which there was not when I was there. I'm sure a lot of it also has to do with that sort of shift in technology yeah. that allowed this to happen. Because well, there's so many more networks, you can watch it everywhere, and there's so much consumption and so much specialized. Uh, viewing nowadays that make shows that were not fiscally viable before right. now are you know huge hits and they have the opportunity to become huge hits things that may not have been a huge hit like Breaking Bad or the Game of Thrones and you know become what they are or even being able to do things that uh, you know transparent on Amazon oh, absolutely you know and Hulu doing their own shows mm -hmm. and everything that Marvel is doing with Netflix which is rewriting what people expect from superhero stories sure. uh, in the quality of what they do and the actors that they they bring in the writers and the directors so and, and how we watch the binge watching that we watch on our right. phones that none of that stuff existed no so um, it, it was it was actually in many ways I look back and say God the worst time to go to film school because <laughs> my my final year at film school we had heard a, a rumor the downstairs, Lucas had donated or put in something called an edit droid. We didn't know. In our minds, we thought it looked like R2-D2. Right, it was right. rolling around and was editing for you. We didn't understand what an edit droid was. And it was the precursor to the Avid. And, and Let me write down edit. I'm going to make one. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Brilliant. It's crazy. And we, we snuck a look at it. And then we were yelled at. And we were told to get out. Oh. Um, which also was how the film school back then was. was very broken down. Like the writers were over here. Mm -hmm. The production program was over here. The, uh, the, the critical studies was over here. And, and then the acting school, there was no bleed over. There was no bleed over right. with, the, with um, the music school. And we would walk past these kids playing violin or right, French just horn. Right, out there on the quad. Or right, right in the quad. The film school. And you think like, wait, there's the John Williams scoring stage. Right, you could see it. You could right. see it. <laughs> right. So why not have those kids right. write music for a script that we wrote that this person's going to direct and that person's... Why wouldn't you just combine everything? Mm -hmm. But there was no communication amongst the various um, right. um, study programs and, and schools of, of, of art. So that was... That was frustrating. You think, mm -hmm. like, shouldn't you be creating communication amongst all these people so that not only do they expand the number of people who know them, 
but also learn how to interact with different people of different specialties. Right. Because that's a key component in moving forward. You want you a writer to know how to talk to a director and a director to be able to talk to an editor and a producer to talk to everyone and a right. director to talk to a composer. And sure, a composer, absolutely. You know, like those are, communication is, is the key. And that's, that's a practical job skill too. It is. And uh, there should have been a greater emphasis on making people, A, understand that, mm -hmm. and two, helping to facilitate that, mm -hmm. which could be the case right now. Uh, <laughs> right. I don't know, but um, it wasn't when I was there. So uh, I tend to probably unfairly bash the film program, but I'm bashing what it was 20 years ago. Right. You know, uh, as opposed to what it, I'm certain in what it must be now. Mm -hmm. Um, you did mention in what John Furia had sort of, not mandated necessarily, but kind of uh, mentioned that one of the things you should maybe be focusing on, or maybe it's just something that you had come up with, but talking about practical things. And, and one of the things that a lot of our listeners to are looking for is representation mm. uh, in terms of what you should look for in a prospective agent and or manager, what you should look to avoid in the prospective agent or manager, are there any sort of red flags or any sort of things that they should be looking for for those that do not yet have representation? A lot of just finding someone to take a meeting with and accepting whatever, whoever says yes, because their, their selection may be limited. Yeah. But assuming that they have the opportunity to meet with multiple reps. I think it's important to know um, how many people they represent, mm -hmm. the types of people they represent, the levels of people that they represent. If they've got 50 staff writers or people looking for their first staff writing job, right? that's kind of a red flag mm -hmm. because it means they're just putting a big net out there and sometimes seeing what sticks. What, what sticks yeah. And also they're just looking for the easy mm -hmm. push. Um, it's, it's also sometimes dangerous to go with a huge agency that has um, big time writers on their staff um, because you'll probably be almost impossible to get a hold of them. Right. Uh, not or to get any No, because they're not making any money off of you, uh, which, is, which is interesting. Um, when you start to work in the industry, and this was something that was interesting to me, you, when you start as a staff writer and then a story editor and executive story editor, you're kind of making more money than you've ever made in your life. <laughs> right. But... To the agent making 10% off of that story editor fee, they don't they really notice it. That. Yeah, they can't live off <laughs> They don't that. really notice yeah. it uh, at a big agency. Sure. And they start to care about you more when you get up past co-producer. Because mm -hmm. then you're starting to make some money and then they can start to say, okay, well, are you going to be a showrunner? Are you going to mm -hmm. be a show creator? Are you going to be a co-EP? Like, right. what, what, what is this? And that's where they can make more money off of you. Sure. So, um, and it's easier to make money off of you at that point. Yes. So what you're looking for in, a, um, in an agent starting off is someone who either is going to take a real uh, sincere interest mm -hmm. in getting you work, um, <clears throat> which is a rare agent mm -hmm. at that early phase. Sure. They, they, uh, or someone that is in an agency that packages or, or has the inside track and says, well, we run... We have uh, a bunch of writers who run different shows, and so they're 
with CAA or they're with UTA or they're mm-hmm. with ICM. And they like to put their own people on those sure, shows. absolutely. So they can help get a little bit of an edge uh, saying, we're going to get them the script and you're going to go in and we're going to tell them that you're great and you're awesome. Um, that helps. Mm-hmm. I, I also think that early on, and this, this is strictly anecdotal, okay, uh, and I admit that, um, it's, is that for me it helped to have a manager who really believed in me mm-hmm. and was uh, my manager over Kinetic, David Baird, is someone who early on said, I get how you fit into this industry. I get uh, that in some cases for me at the time it was a bit of a harder sell. I mm-hmm. was in my mid-30s. I was coming back after other um, careers and it wasn't an easy sell in the sense of like, oh, you're not a diversity hire where we can plug this person in. And right. Like that's, that's an easy sell. And, sure, absolutely. And that, that, that's for that level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a harder sell moving on. Like it, it's easier to, as a diversity hire to get hired right away. It's, I've noticed it's harder for them to move up the ladder just sure. because there is still, um, whether it's conscious or unconscious racism in the industry. And it's an, it's an issue that I think the Guild has been talking about um, very actively over the past 48 months. Mm-hmm. And uh, there have been articles that have been coming out saying that there's really, it's still mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a major issue when you look at actors, writers, directors, producers, it's, it's still an issue. Right. Uh, and I think it was an issue that was brought up in the Oscars and I think all, all of that rightfully so. Right. Um, but it, an agent is going to look at a, a diversity hire and say, that's an easier sell. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was, it, was, it was harder. I wasn't an easy pitch. So I had a man, and I didn't even have an agent for my first gig. Oh, okay. Um, at Law and Order Criminal Intent. That, my manager um, really has been someone who said early on, I see where you belong. Mm-hmm. I understand it's a harder sell. I will be your advocate. And he That's said, right. give me 12 months. Right. And almost 12 months of the day, and then I was staffed and on the show. Wow. Uh, and I, I, I would say you want to find someone who has a clear vision for, a clear specific vision for what they want to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the types of questions you should be asking. If they start saying like, yeah, we're just going to set up a bunch of generals and you're going to do this. You need to do generals, but sure. But what shows do you see me targeting? What right. What... To you can't say I you'd be great on any show, right? You know, like whoever will meet with you, right? Whoever will meet with you with you is is a terrible answer. (laughs) But my manager was very focused early on, saying, "Well, your writing style, your backstory, all this. What we're going to target is we're going to target criminal procedural shows, medical shows, because I had a medical background. I had uh, though it was part of a story that they could create." And that's another thing to look for is what is the story that they're writing for you mm-hmm. in their elevator pitch right. to shows. So when they say that back to you, if it sounds like that makes sense, I understand what the hook is there. I understand why someone might be sitting there going like, that's a pretty sexy pitch that right. you've got there. Um, then great. If they're specific with things in your backstory and implementing them in actionable plans, they're getting you in front of an 
a mid-level executive at a network and a general that handles these three shows that you'd be good on, to getting you in front of a showrunner who is doing a medical show. Uh, maybe he doesn't have a need right now, but might have a need like on another show that maybe is brewing or next season. They might have a lot of groundwork. That first year is a lot of groundwork. Sure. And if someone has plans for what they're going to do with you for that first year, then they probably are a good person to sign with. Right. If you're just hearing the the L.A. <laughs> totally awesome sounding spin. Right. I'll get your script to everyone. Everyone. And we're going to bring you in here. And right. this person's going to flip over you. And you're going to be awesome. Right. And it's like, eh, really? Is that really how it's going to be? Or we're going to sell this script? Mm, right. I don't know. Like, I, I, my manager never thought, like, whatever script or pilot you're writing or this sample that you're writing, we're, we're not going to sell it. This is going to be our calling card. Right. And if people start making promises for things that are totally unrealistic, right? bananas. That's, that's not what you, you should be listening to. It's exciting and you right. want to believe it, but if, if you're listening to something that sounds like, God, I, wa I wish this would, is, can that come true? Probably not. Right. You, know, you getting on a staff, yeah, that can, that can happen. Right, right, right. If you're focused and you have the right people in place, right. the right support, and you're lucky. Absolutely. There's a ton of luck. Absolutely. Because it's really a game of musical chairs. And is there a chair? It, it, the planets have to align for that chair. Yes. You know, you have to connect with the showrunner. It has to be something that you're passionate about. It has to be in the right level that you're at, whether it's staff writer or supervising producer. Right. It has to all sort of line up. Yeah. That's right. I, I, and yeah, and, and shows have budgets. Sometimes, sure, absolutely. Sometimes they want to hire you, but they literally can't afford to hire you. Right. You know, and that's why you'll look, well, why did you hire those? Two staff writers, because those two staff writers are cheaper than your one, one salary. salary. Right. And they get two writers for the you know, price of, for a staff writer, like almost nothing. Right. Because sometimes the, depending on the who they are. The diversity program pays right. for it. Yeah. So. Um, and sometimes if it's a writing team, they get two writers for the price of one. Right. Which is kind of ridiculous. It is. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, that, that is a tough thing. And I see my friends who are writing pairs I think oh my gosh that is that's a that is a tough tough burden yeah. some, I mean it's great to have a partner there I, I there have been a lot of times where I said god I wish I had someone I could split the script with because right. it's it can by the time you're halfway through act three alone and you're you <laughs> see that deadline wait I'm supposed to have this in by Friday morning at 8 a.m. oh crap I wish someone was helping me um but yeah, there, there are pluses and minuses for, for both. Right. But those are the things I think to look for with agents and managers is, do they have a really clear and focused vision for what they want to do with you? And is it something that is actionable? Is it something that you guys can set one month, three month, six month, and 12 month goals to register and to calibrate to make sure that you're actually seeing forward progression mm -hmm. because during that first year it can be very frustrating you can think i haven't gotten a job right but what's happening is you're laying the groundwork for getting a job right. and part of that first year and all those generals and all those meetings that seem like they're great maybe they're going to offer me something but no they were just making sure that you didn't have a arm growing out of the center of your head right you know, or that you wore pants to the meeting right or you um, weren't a raging a-hole right exactly <laughs> And, Which they are out there. You no, know, oh, totally. Um, and then they start to think, 
oh, well, I've seen this person a couple times, mm-hmm. or I've had meetings with this person. Right. I feel comfortable with this person. Right. And then once they feel comfortable, then they feel okay to uh, push you for a show sure. where there is a slot that opens. Um, it's just It just takes a while for people to get comfortable. Right. Because it's also not like you're not hanging out every week. You right. have a meeting, and then three months later or six months later, you have right. another one, and... And and you do things like you know send a note or something like that afterwards to say thank you right you know to both because it's it's respectful but sure. also it helps make you stand out a little bit more um, but you you have to have those benchmarks along the way which you can make sure like wait did we did I get a, a general at all the networks that we said we were going to if you hadn't then you get to say to your agent or manager why why right. didn't that happen right 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 so if you're very clear and they're very clear then then you get to know, is it working or is it not? Sure. Are we doing everything that we can or not? Right. Uh, and if at the end of a year you say, hey, this isn't working, then maybe you kind of go a different direction. I've been very lucky. I have both managers and agents that are extremely uh, proactive uh, uh, with, with me and, and great partners, both creatively and professionally. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. That's, yeah. It's tough. To find and yes. when you find the right ones, you like you hold on to right, them. They're absolutely. they're your they're your 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 binky, right? Or, yeah. Or wait, what's a binky? It's security blanket. Is, right? is that is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> or is that the 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 oh, sucker? Maybe it is. is that yeah, the pacifier? My friends with kids always go, no, don't you? Want... I, I have a two year old, and I don't know what that is. Right. My kid doesn't like have anything he's attached to. Never <laughs> pacifier. I, I, we might want to look into that. Yeah, <laughs> he just runs around. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I would be remiss without talking about uh, uh, Gallo and Sullivan. You're, you're a drama writer, meaning you write the one-hour format. Um, we were talking about this earlier, but I think it's, it's, it's funny. Pun intended, I suppose. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Gallo and Sullivan and how that transpired and why you don't write comedy. Because uh, you have a, a ton of comedy friends. I have a ton of comedy friends. Yeah, um, very funny people. Well, uh, and that... All stems from my brother. My brother, um, he, he's a sports writer and, and podcaster. He does Sully Baseball um, daily. Every single day. Every single day. It's been over Great. 500, well over 500 wow. episodes right now. Um, it's got to be more than that. Maybe it's 600. But um, he was a stand-up comic for a long time. And I started hanging out with him. I, I was writing soap opera at the time. And so I would start hanging out at places like Don't Tell Mamas and Gotham and a lot of places that don't exist anymore, like um, um, Yield Triple N, which was my favorite place to go to. And you would be there, the bars are open till four and the, you know, people would go on till two in the morning and then there would be a, a post-game wrap-up with the group of comedians that you really liked. My brother, or Chris Regan, who writes Family Guy now, or Dan Cronin, uh, and John Corbett, and those guys write uh, Conan, and uh, C.C. Pleasance, who writes everything on TV right. that's funny, apparently. Who's uh, been on the show. Who's been on the show, that's yeah. right. And um, a whole group of people, uh, Richie Duncan, and just great uh, Julia Sharp, who's got a whole bunch of stuff coming on TV now. It, it, all these people were together, and we, we, had a, we would start to hang out. And then uh, Patrick Gallo was someone who was close with Richie Duncan and my brother, and then I became close with him, and then we started collaborating uh, with his original comedy partner, Carrie and Gallo, and then we started 
by the time we moved out to California, then we started doing um, uh, short comedy um, films, and then um, he did. I would direct him in some um, one-man show stuff. It, Patrick was the he was the Richard Dreyfus to my Spielberg, <laughs> uh, in the, in that in that standpoint. Like he, you, when you have someone like Patrick, you don't put someone else on camera and other than Patrick. Right. I mean, he's he's unbelievably charismatic and funny, and still acts. He's going to be in the new um, HBO um, James Franco uh, series um, about porn, I think, in the seventies yeah. or something like that. Um, which he's going to play totally crazy character um, but he's so we started really um, putting an emphasis on doing video comedy mm. so um, short form uh, video projects that we would shoot around LA um, and experiment with um, editing and um, uh, storytelling and characterization uh, and the visual styles like uh, uh, and that's how we learned how to edit that's how we learned how to really work a camera and where, where to place a camera mm -hmm. and what worked and what didn't work and and um, so we were we, it was it was the most creative and crazy fun um, time to be funny and 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 it, it was uh, we, we just lived a couple of blocks from each other so we would both shoot stuff, and then we'd cut, and then we'd come together, and we'd edit together, and and uh, it was it was exhausting because we were both um, obsessive compulsive and emotional and crazy, and we would also fall in love with something, uh, and say be so certain that this was perfect as it was, and then we would have a screening, or we would show it at a festival, or be somewhere at a comedy. Um, festival and then about a minute into it say okay well we really have to recut that and I and, but it was great because it it forced us to learn how to um, re-edit and and take criticism and um, and not be um, slaves to what we thought was uh, the creative choices that should have been made. Right. That uh, with comedy, especially, if they're not laughing, it's not funny. Right. You know. I mean, they. You could you could argue certain points like, well, no, they just didn't get that. But most of the time is you can't just say to the audience like, you didn't get it. Right. If they're not laughing, you probably really need to take a hard look and say, well, why aren't they laughing? Right. Um, and that that I'm grateful for from a dramatic standpoint because. It made me more willing to take uh, criticism, and it prepared me for to take criticism. Um, I think more than some other people that I work with in uh, writers' room, especially people that come from like uh, theater, mm. you know, dr dramatic theater, mm -hmm. where um, your word is God. Sure, um, it's it's never God. Uh, <laughs> On a TV show, no, no. so you you should be pretty well uh, prepared to um, take some criticism because you're always going to get it. Right. And with comedy, you, you, it's it's binary. It's either they're laughing or they're not. Right. Um, and so that prepared me for for criticism 
much more than I think anything else. I'm grateful for all the experimentation that we did as uh, as that kind of team up that we had, mm -hmm. and uh, how weird we were, and when to kind of cling to the one the one weird thing and listen to the, to the rest right. of it. Uh, you know what hills to, you were going to die on. Um, but that that was that was a really um, working with Patrick Gallo was as as fulfilling a creative experience as one could possibly imagine. And you know, he's also he was the best man at my wedding. He's he's more than a friend and he's more than a creative partner. He's like my brother, you right. know, just just like my brother working with my brother Except on he doesn't do a podcast on baseball. He doesn't do a podcast every day. Right. No, his podcast would be bizarre. <laughs> I don't even want to know what his podcast would be. Um, but he's it, it was a it was a really good creative experience. I was never um, the brave performer that my brother is or mm -hmm. Patrick Gall or CeCe. The, the ones that week after week would get in front of the microphone and, and put themselves out there. And I, I always had to have a camera oh, and a projector. Uh, I just, I don't like, I don't, I'm not brave enough to be that person. I, I like kind of standing in the wings. <laughs> and I like my brother and Cece and Patrick Gallo are three people who I have really enjoyed being creatively um, creative partners with. Mm -hmm. And they've all been far more willing to be the one in the spotlight, which I'm <laughs> totally happy with. I'm totally happy. That's with. why it works. Yes. That's why we do podcasts and not camera interviews. Right. right. We've done camera interviews. You're actually, I think... You're uh, oh, on, that, on the Scripps and Scribes website. We have a video interview with you, and it actually is, I think, the second most views to uh, Robert Kirkman of The Walking Dead. Oh, it, that, I, that was, I was pretty hungover that day. <laughs> I, I'd been out with uh, Barry like, Sloan and his brother much, that yeah. night uh, playing pool down at the, uh, the King's Head, and yeah, I, was, I think I was still <laughs> sweating pints of booze. And, <laughs> Is that what that was? Uh, yeah, it was. That was. I, I do not look my best there. That is funny. Um, I wanted to touch base. I read on your Twitter recently that uh, you said I would not be a writer if not for your talented, beautiful cousin, um, Marian Ellen Sullivan, writer, uh, blogger, uh, passed away recently, and I just wanted to, I don't know, take a moment to, uh, you know. Talk about her inspiration of you and your writing career. And, and well, she's great. She's, I mean, she's a tremendous writer. Uh, her writing is uh, still online at her site, uh, On the Wings of the Hummingbird, which is a, which was a site she created uh, years ago to um, express her uh, self creatively on a, if not daily basis, on a certainly a weekly basis. It uh, was a source of. Um, also, inspiration for a lot of people it was a very upbeat, uh, inspirational site mm -hmm. with insights on on living and uh, from from both a practical standpoint and also a spiritual standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, she saw uh, she was a travel writer, so she saw a great amount of the world, like just so many interesting corners of the world, and and didn't just go and look at buildings, but interacted with people and and as. I said to someone recently, you know, she always took the hard way because she found that was the most fulfilling. Mm. Um, but for me personally, when I left writing and I left soap, after soap opera 
and I was living in the Bay Area and I was contemplating a, a, a very different life, uh, a life um, which I, at the time I was uh, doing research with SRI and Stanford and uh, on normal aging and Alzheimer's disease and HIV and uh, alcohol studies, uh, longitudinal alcohol studies. And it was very interesting and I was enjoying doing that, um, but I was also kind of coasting. And Mary Ellen, uh, my cousin, called me up and she spoke to me like she always did as an older sister. Um, but she was, uh, she was firm uh, and had a hint of disappointment, but it was disappointment uh, used as motivation, uh, not as, um, as a tool to make me feel bad about myself. Um, just where she called me out and said, you know, I, what are you doing? You're, you're a writer um, and you, you should be writing because you still have things to say. And I think that she, as a fellow writer, could recognize when someone was walking away because they were scared, not walking away because they had made a conscious decision to go a different path. Um, she was very astute in that way because she was a writer and an observer of human nature, which is what you should be doing as a writer. Mm. And because of that, she inspired me to go back to the keyboard and I started writing and, and a lot of that stuff didn't end up yielding anything that I look at now and say, oh, that was great or, right. or, or I'm going to make that someday. But it got me just writing again and then realized that she was, she was challenging me to actually put words down and see, does it still excite you? And it did. And I think she was the one person in my life, and certainly the one person in my family who was able to get through to me at that point when I was pretty depressed uh, and find a way to inspire me, which is what she, what her legacy will continue to be as a writer, mm -hmm. uh, as someone inspirational. But she challenged me to also be a better writer. Um, I think what she knew was I was frustrated by the soap opera world. I was frustrated. Like I, I got pretty good at being able to write one or two scripts a week, which is what we did, and churn them out, and it was fine. But it wasn't what I got into writing for. Sure. And I think what she was saying to me in that moment was, you're a better writer than you've been. You're coasting right now. See if there's something more in there. And she was right. I, I still loved it. I still... I still uh, had stories to tell, and I had more of a point of view than I did when I was 26 or 27 or 28, now at 30, 31, 32. So um, she inspired me to take the jump and to open up a little bit more, to be a little more personal in my, and specific in my writing, because she's very specific in her writing. And uh, um, because she would write shorter form uh, uh, travel essays as opposed to uh, a movie script or you know a two hour movie, mm -hmm. uh, her theme and her point of view had to be very focused. And so when I would look at her writing or when we would have talks about writing, it became clear to me that she was emphasizing theme uh, 
more than I had ever thought about before. Right. And that made me a much better um, adult writer. Uh, so that when I go to a, a show now, the first question I tend to ask is because of Mary Ellen. I go, well, what's the theme? What, what's, what, what is the central question that we're asking here? Because as a, as a travel writer, you don't just write, oh, I, I went to Florence and the food was great. I mean, you can. Right. But what makes you a good travel writer, right. what makes you one that was, and, and she was, and, and she was well sought after by major outlets, was that she had a point of view. Mm -hmm. And she had something specific to say. And she had a lesson that she learned from being in the Middle East or biking across China or going through Africa, whatever the, wherever she was. It wasn't just, I saw this and I ate this. It was, I learned this. Right. This person taught me this. And um, I think that's why her readers are still so shocked that she's gone and that the people who I'm grateful who have followed me on Twitter have sought out her site and I've promoted it a number of times over the especially over the past couple of years that they have pointed out wow her writing really meant something to me and connected with me on, a, on an emotional level because she also wrote about you know her her fight with cancer on on her site and she continued to show uh, layers of herself through that struggle um, that were clear and focused and um, but very specific and personal. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I try to remember in everything that I'm writing, especially now, because I'm especially... One, she just passed away, so she's on my mind a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but... Uh, but also I have time now in between shows where I'm trying to write my own stuff. Right. And so you don't want to end up just writing, uh, just writing something um, without any uh, specific details that make it um, reflect your personality or, or sure. a vision or a theme or, or a point of view that you really want to get across. Um, I got frustrated with myself the other day, and I thought of her because I, it was one o'clock in the morning, I was writing a scene, and I got really frustrated, and I stood up and I said, what is pissing me off so much? And I realized, oh, this is just the scene where she sits down at the table and talks to that guy, and he says, I'm never gonna do this, and then she says midway through the, this thing, and then he goes, all right, I'll do it, because you'd said the thing that I wanted to hear. Right, the paint by the number. Right, and I said, no. Oh, there's nothing in this, that's just that scene. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in it that makes it um, have a point of view right. or, or really fits in the theme. It's just a get there scene. Right. And she never, she never just got there. She always lived in the moment. Didn't take the easy way. Nope, never. And uh, sometimes that made her <laughs> exhausting. <laughs> sure. Like, as I said the other day, you know, Mary Ellen was always right, even when she was wrong. Right. But it's also what made her amazing. Um, and uh, and a great, great writer. She's just a a terrific writer and an equally terrific person. Um, and uh, I am grateful that she pushed me at a point in my life when I didn't think I could be pushed or wanted to be pushed or was strong enough to be pushed. Right. And uh, I I will always be grateful for that. Uh, and uh, I will try moving forward to uh, 
live up to the very, very high standards she set as a writer because it was not about just pushing words on a page and it was not about just getting a paycheck. Mm -hmm. It was about getting people to think about the world and the people around them and how they interact with those people. And that's what a TV show should do, too. Right. Um, so, uh, she, she, was, uh, she will continue to be a huge influence. And uh, what, uh, on the wings of... The Hummingbird. The Hummingbird. Mm -hmm. uh, people want to... Is, is it on the wings of the hummingbird.com? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, and uh, there are links on, on my Twitter feed and all that and on my Instagram that... We'll put a link. Yeah, sure. So. But she, there's, a, there's years of writing back there, plus she's got books, and uh, there's just great stuff of her. Well, great writing is, is great writing. Yep. Um, and I think as writers, you can learn from great writing, wherever yes. it comes from, in all forms. Uh, and the best writers have a strong point of view. They, have a vo they, you, they talk a lot about voice. We talk about voice. A lot of questions we get about, you know, because agents and managers are all looking for somebody with a voice. Well, what, it's always this amorphous concept. What does that mean? You know, how do I get that in my script? It it's really come, boils down to you, what you were talking about putting yourself in the script, not physically, you know, putting a repl replication of yourself, like... Yeah, that's, the easy, like that's the easy thing to right. do. Right. But to actually insert, you know, aspects of theme that, you know, you... Uh, aspects of, of the point of view that you're inserting in there. Not just your point of view, but a point of view that is something that you're inserting in, in there. Yeah, and every every character shouldn't have your point of view. No, not at all. Right. Um, but overarching themes can be part of yes. know, something drawn from your life or something that you know. thematically should represent your point of sure. view. Sure. Um, I, I think I think that's why now I've been throwing myself more into reading stuff, uh, reading books, and watching uh, material that aren't. Um, just the, the everyday stuff I might normally gravitate to. Right. I'm, not, I'm not just re-watching Empire Strikes Back, you know. I'm, I'm, uh, Nothing wrong with that. No, I no, it. occasionally. I um, I but I, I, I definitely have been um, uh, looking. I, I, the other day I watched um, uh, Encounters at, at the End of the World, the Werner Herzog documentary mm -hmm. about uh, people living in Antarctica. And somehow that slipped through. I, I love, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. And yeah. for some reason, I, I missed that. Uh, and I watched it. And it was amazing. And, and the, his point of view and his theme that he expressed through these characters that all somehow had ended up living at the, in Antarctica, working together, studying, studying it, and having very, very specific points of views and philosophies. Um, it was fascinating, and it that challenged me. Watching Kurosawa recently, which I've been on a big kick mm -hmm. of watching that recently, um, challenges me. Reading um, some of the books, or, or even watching Frontline, I, I've been watching a lot of Frontline because that's one of the great things about Apple TV is they have this. You know, you can start to go through and mm -hmm. say, "Well, wait, let, let me go down to the PBS one and right. say." Okay, now I'm going to dig through Frontline and then say, realize, you know what, I don't really know a lot about, I, I only know the headlines for the immigration debate. Mm -hmm. So the Frontline had an incredible thing, or, or, or Putin's way, there was a one on Putin, right. where I'm like, hmm, I kind of know about Putin, but I want to know more. And then... Yeah, they do great And stories. it's just fantastic. Right. So trying to dig into that a little bit more and, and 
push the envelope. And, and certainly reading Mary Ellen's words or rereading a lot of them, saying like, right, there's a lot to be gleaned and learned here. So um, I think it's important to keep stepping outside of just the, right, this is, this is the new hit Fox show or right. Netflix show or whatever. It's good, it's good to watch all that and keep sure. up on all that, but it's also good step outside to step outside and yeah. read some other stuff that maybe you, you don't think about too much. Right. Um, so that, I, I think that's, in, that's important. I think she, she certainly has a lot to offer on, uh, from that standpoint. Um, but whatever the case, have a strong theme. Like, mm-hmm. It's very, very clear to me that the people who behind the humans and Mr. Robot have a very clear theme they are working with. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting to, uh, those two shows like really hit me on a gut level after watching the, the pilot saying like, this is about something. Mm-hmm. This is using in human standpoint, uh, science fiction and Mr. Robot standpoint, kind of like conspiracy theory, right. paranoia. But ha- but have something very important to say that it, it's they're doing as good a job in Mr. Robot and in the episodes I've watched so far I haven't finished the first season yet but because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to get caught up but of of making some statements about that corporate too big to fail right. uh, world that some of the big Hollywood movies that were trying to make the same point uh, they've, they've done a better job than that right. And Humans has done an incredible job of talking about racism and dealing with it with these synths. Right. Uh, it's really, it's taking some of the ideas of, of, um, of Blade Runner and then kind of pushing them a little bit further and really getting to explore it in a, in a television format. Those two shows, I think, are so far I've been really, really impressed with. Right. Really what them. else are you watching? Uh, obviously, uh, Better Call Saul. I, I I I just keep falling in love with that show. Yeah. I think it's, um, I, for me personally, it surpassed Breaking Bad this season right really? now. Yeah, just because I, I I feel it definitely feels more nuanced to me. It's way it's very nuanced. I just it, it it's not as um, visceral as Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad always has those moments where you right. realize I I've been. Sitting here, my, my friend Sean McFarlane, who runs a tr- tremendous site, uh, um, um, Standby for Mind Control, with our friend Zach Kushner, um, which is kind of a film critique mm-hmm. and TV critique, he, uh, he wrote a, once about watching Breaking Bad, and he had poured himself a scotch, and they realized at the end of the episode, he'd looked down, he'd never <laughs> taken a sip of the scotch, because he was just holding it the whole time, right. just so tense. Um, Breaking, uh, uh, Better Call Saul is a different type of show, but I'm, for some reason, I'm just clicking into it more. Uh, I, I really like what they have to say. I really like that most of what they're saying is without violence or a gun. It's right. these characters interacting with each other and making moral choices and lying to themselves mm-hmm. or uh, lying to people around them and what are the repercussions for that. or lying to protect them uh, or shield them or um, line all all of those types of questions about identity and and who are we which obviously they're dealing with because he's going to turn into Saul right right at some uh, point at some point um, 
is fantastic and I just think watching Saul and Mike and Kim like these are three characters that are all kind of coming together like uh, like trains on three different tracks and you know it's going to end up horribly it's just got to I mean I didn't see yesterday's episode so I have not either okay yeah. so we won't spoil it for anybody nor ourselves each other if we could then that <laughs> right that would be a strange thing but one thing is that even Chuck He's sort of developing into... He's such an asshole. But yet, at the same time, he's not as big an asshole as I thought he was. Yes, I agree. That's... You know, which is, to me, really, really... Completely agree. Right. Completely agree. And In fact, they're doing... They're, they're, that's what I find so exciting about the show, uh, that they're advancing these characters in such a way that they're getting Chuck to a place... Where I think Hank was starting to get later in later in the run right. by season four or five, where you hated Hank, but then you started right. to root for him because you understood him and you realized he's kind of more the good guy. Right. I, Chuck's both an asshole, but I totally understand why where he's coming, where he's coming from. from right now. Absolutely. So whereas Howard, you always kind of knew he was an asshole, but now he seems to be even more so. Right. Right. And. So I don't know. I, I, I think that show's really, really interesting. Uh, Peaky Blinders, I'm halfway through season one, and I'm totally digging that I show. I only saw the pilot for that. Yeah, I, I, I love the pilot. I, I think it's, I, it's, it's an interesting choice to have the, the modern music. I'm not sure mm. always how I feel about that. Right. But it is unbelievably well-written. I mean, like, jaw-droppingly so. Uh, it is the... Best looking show that I maybe yeah. ever on TV. It's it looks it's, fantastic. it's stunning, and I think the performances across the board are right. amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I just watch it and then sometimes I get a little lost in the middle and then I realize how it all came together in the end and go, oh how clever. And also watching it from a production standpoint, I say it looks really big and expensive, but they're also being really smart at how they shoot it and where they shoot it and what are repeated sets and right. It's really. From a, I'm truly, truly impressed by that. Mm -hmm. And like I said, Mr. Robot, so far I've been really... Mr. Robot and Humans I've been um, pretty blown away by. Mm -hmm. uh, really, because they have something to say. And they're saying it very well. Right. And they have a cast that um, clicks really, really well. Um, I'm trying to think of that. This time, because I know you always ask that. I was like, <laughs> uh, And then the other, from a comedy standpoint, yeah. I've been re-watching... Uh, peep show spaced and that Mitchell Webb look, which I, I, I forgot how funny Peep Show was. Uh, it is a, it's not for everyone, but it's about to. Uh, um, Mitchell and Webb are a comedy duo from um, England, and mm -hmm. it's they're roommates, and it's all told in POV. Oh, okay. Uh, so, and they do very clever things in order to get two shots or three <laughs> shots because then you go to the next, someone sits down. and then, Oh, I gotcha. But it's, uh, it's really, really funny. It's really, it's really funny and irreverent and, and uh, spaced. Uh, I'm showing my wife for the first time and mm -hmm. she's just loving it because it's, the characterizations are so great. And again, they have really specific points of view for the characters and thematically what each episode is about, which I really, I really appreciate. It's great. So those are good. Very cool. Now, I haven't seen either of those, which I'll have to definitely check them out. I'm a 
big comedy guy, which is kind of interesting. So, mm-hmm. because you know, I definitely skew more drama, right? But there are those comedy gems that that you know. Yeah, you just I... like for, like recently, just the the grinder. I think it's a fantastic show. If you haven't seen it, I have not seen it yet. I think it's yeah. absolutely fantastic. It's, it's smart and irreverent. The chemistry between uh, Fred Savage mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, uh, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe is fantastic. The whole cast is yeah. really, really amazing. Um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt's coming back. Oh, right, right. Great show. And then, um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, uh, well, th- those are the three like comedies that I've been. Yeah. Watching. Kind of diving into and becoming re-addicted to, which is which is good. I wish there was more space. I I keep thinking like, oh no, there's only six episodes per season, and there's only two seasons, but they're perfectly told. The British show, it is. Yeah, yeah those those Brits, they got to get their act together. They know, but you know, Sherlock's like three or six episodes. It's like, what are you doing to us? <laughs> Luther is sometimes <laughs> yeah, two. I know, but uh, it's good. But that that's yeah, that's what I've been. Oh, and and OJ, I've been obsessed with. Oh, the American crime. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah obsessed yeah. with that. I think it's. <laughs> I, I I fully admit I was totally wrong. I kept thinking like, what is this going to be about? Right. Like, what? Why would I want to watch this? And now I'm just like, wait, is it is it on? Is right. It, was it on last night? No, it wasn't on last night. Uh, and John Oliver always is. I think he's he's brilliant. He's really brilliant. been great. He's so smart and bold and. Uh, I, he again has something to say, and I think he says it for the most part exceedingly well. Like he's really smart. You ta- you mentioned Better Call Saul surpassing Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. For me, John Oliver and I loved John Stewart and I loved uh, Colbert. Colbert. And I don't know if it's because John Oliver does once a week, so he has more time to write and prepare, and his material is just sharper. Or you know what those guys were all daily. Or if it's because he's an outsider coming from you know. You know, from England, even though I think he's a U.S. citizen now. He is. He came from, from and he has a wife who is uh, a vet herself who um, was over in Afghanistan, oh, I, I believe. Yes. Um, and I think she did two tours over there. So he definitely has a perspective and an insight, I think, that is... Um, but just so brilliant. Yeah. I think he's brilliant. I think, I think his show is helped by the fact that it's on HBO, so they're not beholden to the same that's type of... That's true, too. Um, kind of standards, standards. Uh, and also um, even though Col- Col- you know uh, Comedy Central is pretty fast and loose, they are. But you, you still South have spon- you still have sponsors, sponsors and sure. all that type of thing. So um, they, I think, they benefit from that. They definitely benefit from doing one show a week. Oh, that's yeah, without question. And but that that's not to take away from how brilliant no, it is absolutely and, not, and how good the writing is on that show, and how good he is at the at the delivery. I will say that for me, nothing is harder or more impressive than what Colbert did every night. Colbert playing that character, maintaining the, that role, right. and night after night doing what the conservative talking head show does, doing it so better than they, they do. To the exactly. White House press yeah, the, they the think that you're kind of. Part of their right, right. They get confused. I think what he did was exhausting and brilliant. And I think, I hope that moving forward in TV history, people will look back and recognize how important 
what Colbert did was. I actually think that with his, you know, on the the late show, mm-hmm. he, I, I, he brings a lot of that t- to mm-hmm. the show, which mm-hmm. I totally didn't expect. Yeah, yeah, he does, um, it, it, which is great, and he's, sure. he's he continues to be great. Um, I I think that the Colbert rapport was such an exhausting and incredible and dazzling performance piece night after night. And I'm not sure that America realized at the time how lucky mm-hmm. they were to have that. Because... Well, if, you know, if we didn't have John Oliver, I don't know. <laughs> I, I know. If we didn't have John Oliver, I think I'd, yeah, I, I'd lose it myself. Yeah. On that note, we still have other things, but I know we're starting to run a little long here. Um, so be sure to check out Mary Ellen's on this blog. Yes, it's, it's on, the wing, on the wings of the hummingbird, uh, dot com And uh, Sully Baseball. Uh, Sully Baseball Daily. Uh, it's on iTunes. It's on, uh, it's on uh, SoundCloud. Um, and uh, that's my brother, Sully Baseball. You can follow him on Twitter. Yep. Um, and follow Ted at Carter Hall. K-A-R-T-E-R-H-O-L uh, on Twitter. I don't know if you use any other social media. Nope. Uh, oh, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram. Twitter and Instagram. There you go. That's it. And, uh, yeah. Thanks you all for listening. We'll be back soon. Thanks, Thanks for having me. I just kick it from my head.